So true confession, <laughs> last night I admit that you know, we're talking about God's provision today. I was praying an extra prayer that God might just perform a miracle and provide a victory for my Tar Heels this year. <sighs> there was a moment where I thought God might come through and alas, once again, not the case. And then I realized that's not exactly what I should be pr praying for and not exactly a good illustration of God's provision. Um, so I will continue my Lenten sorrows of loss and um, pain and suffering for my Carolina Blue. Um, I do want to take a moment and welcome back a familiar face. We are so happy to have Laura Birch back in our presence again. <laughs> Laura's been on a two-month renewal leave. She's been to Guatemala, an abbey, um, hiking or camping in the, the, the mountains. So um, a beautiful time of spiritual renewal for her. And, uh, but we are glad to have her back and in our midst. So welcome back. We do continue our sermon series this week on trusting God. And last week we talked about how um, we can trust God's truth. Today, though, we are going to talk about trusting God's provision in our life. Now, this is a theological truth that I personally just believe so passionately in. I believe so passionately God's ability to provide. And so maybe that's why in this, um, um, our worship planning, uh, to, to get to the to be able to comprehend just the breadth and the depth of God's ability to provide, we chose this particular scripture passage this morning we're going to hear. But I've got to admit, it is one of the hardest, hardest stories in the Bible to preach from. Theologian Walter Brueggemann calls this story one of the best known and theologically most demanding of the Abraham tradition. So today we're going to hear the story of the testing of Abraham, some call it the binding of Isaac. Now there's a couple of things I need to share with you before you hear this story in order to hear, fully hear the words this morning. I invite you to do your best to set aside your emotional reactions to this story about God, I'm asking Abraham to sacrifice his son in order to see what is actually going on here. If that is all we hear in the story, if that is all we focus on, then our emotions will keep us from noticing anything else. And once again, just like last week, I invite you to focus on what God is doing in this story. And I invite us to focus on what Abraham is actually doing and saying in this story. Now, a couple of other helpful hints um, that might, might make this, um, the context of the story come alive for you. First of all, it's important to know that Abraham and God have an already established relationship. And Abraham already trusts God. Unlike earlier, a few chapters earlier, when the call of Abraham or Abram at the time comes to him from God, it comes out of the blue. But in this story, a lot has happened since then. 
Abraham indeed answered the call of God and picked his family up to go wherever God sends him and to be the father of many nations, even though he and Sarah are very old and they have no children. This story also comes after Abraham and Sarah have gone into a foreign city and Abraham pretends that Sarah is his sister and not his wife and it gets him into trouble with the king there. Abraham has even stood up to God about saving the the city of Sodom because he's begging, he intervened and he begs God that if there were just five righteous people in this city, then wouldn't that be worth saving? This story comes after the birth of Ishmael and right after Abraham has sent Ishmael and his servant Hagar, Ishmael's mother, away, leaving only Isaac. Now the other helpful thing to know is that you're going to hear me read over and over and over an entirely burnt offering, entirely burnt offering. And when you hear that, um, I know it sounds disturbing, but we got to put ourselves into the sacrificial worship um, mindset and time frame. And this was actually a specific kind of offering. They had a thank offering. They had a first fruits offering. They had a guilt offering. They had an entirely burnt offering. So I found it helpful to think in terms of, of a modern day example might be saying like a love offering. Sometimes we collect a special love offering for something above and beyond our general offering. And so this is the same kind of thing. God was asking for a special kind of offering. Once again, I invite you to keep your eye on what God and Abraham are doing and saying in spite of the difficulty of the topic itself. I invite you to hear Genesis 22, the story of the testing of Abraham. After these events, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, Abraham answered, I'm here. God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah. Offer him up as an entirely burned offering there on one of the mountains that I will show you. Abraham got up early in the morning, harnessed his donkey and took two of his young men with him together with his son, Isaac. He split the wood for the entirely burned offering, set out, and went to the place God had described to him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place at a distance. Abraham said to his servants, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will walk up there, worship, and then come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the entirely burned offering and laid it on his son Isaac. He took the fire and the knife in his hand, and the two of them walked on together. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father? Abraham said, I'm here, my son. Isaac said, here is the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the entirely burned offering? Abraham said, the lamb for the entirely burned offering? God will see to it, my son. The two of them walked on together. They arrived at the place God had described to him. Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He tied up his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. 
But the Lord's messenger called out to Abraham from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. For the third time, Abraham said, I'm here. The messenger said, don't stretch out your hand against the young man and don't do anything to him. I now know that you revere God and didn't hold back your son, your only son from me. Abraham looked up and saw a single ram caught by its horns in the dense underbrush. Abraham went over, took the ram, offered it as an entirely burnt offering instead of his son. Abraham named that place the Lord sees. That is the reason people today say on this mountain, the Lord is seen. The Lord's messenger called out to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I give my word as the Lord that because you did this and didn't hold back your son, your only son, I will bless you richly and I will give you countless descendants, as many as the stars in the sky and as the grains of sand on the seashore. You see, he's reiterating here the blessing that Abraham has already received back in chapter 12. They will conquer their enemy's cities. All the nations of the earth will be blessed because of your descendants, because you obeyed me. After Abraham returned to the young men, they got up and went to Beersheba, where Abraham lived. Friends, this is God's word for all of God's people. Let us pray. Gracious God, give us humble teachable and obedient hearts that we may receive what you have revealed, trust in you and do what you have commanded. Amen. Hmm. Do what you have commanded. So what kind of God commands the murder of a son? Well, I name the conflict for most of us, but the challenge that is at the heart of this text is that the whole point of a sacrifice, something that is a sacrifice to us, means that it is an offering to God of something that we love. For Abraham to offer up his only son at this point, Isaac, is an act of faith. And for Abraham, it involves his hope that God will offer that promised life of his son back to him in one way or another. Is that through another son being born from Sarah? Is it through saving or resuscitating Isaac? Abraham doesn't know for sure, but what we do know is that Abraham already trusted God. And probably because Abraham already trusts God, God needs to test Abraham. So why is this necessary? What does this test tell us about God? Well, God has a lot riding on Abraham, to be clear. Abraham is the one that God promised to build his nation out of. Father Abraham, Abraham through Isaac is going to be uh, the, the future, the present, the origin, and the future of the Israelite people. And so God needs to make sure that he's placed his bet on the right one by choosing Abraham as the father of this nation. God needs to know if Abraham trusts God to the fullest, 
Will he stay the course to the end? But here's the kicker. God doesn't know. God doesn't know the answer to that question. You see, this isn't a game that God is playing with Abraham. He needs to know the depth of Abraham's trust and faithfulness of God. And as I've already said, Abraham has been faithful at points, but he's also strayed a bit by fathering a son through his servant Hagar, not trusting God to work through Sarah and being patient. And he has not trusted when he was in a foreign land and tried to pass Sarah off as his sister, got in trouble with the king and God had to save his hide. We know God is seeking an answer when finally in verse 12, after everything has happened and God has stopped Abraham, God says, I know now that you are faithful. But God really puts Abraham through the ringer. It's not like he gives Abraham this command and then then just a few minutes to make a decision about Isaac. It's a three-day journey that he goes on. He has all kinds of time to dwell on this excruciatingly difficult task. He has every opportunity to come up with a million reasons or opportunities to resist or to counterplot or to back out of the command, but Abraham never falters, not once. Now some would ask, why doesn't he protest? We know he can because he did earlier when God threatened to destroy Sodom. Um, Abraham intervenes on behalf of a few good people to prevent God from destroying the whole city because of a few bad people. So why doesn't he now? Y'all, I think this is very telling to us. When, of course, any loving father, and we have no evidence in Scripture to show us that Abraham was anything but a loving father to Isaac, would have not protested such an act. But I believe that Abraham was on to God from the very beginning. This flag for him is an outrageous ask. And from the beginning, Abraham trusted God to provide. There was no way that God was going to flip upside down his promise to bless and create a nation from Abraham by asking him to kill the one and only son that would fulfill that promise. I believe Abraham knew there was more to this story than what was being asked of him and that he knew to the very core of his being to trust God completely on this one. For a moment, let's take a closer look at Abraham in this story. Before giving him Worst Father of the Year award, let's see how he actually handled this situation. First of all, he is a perfect example of a non-anxious presence. In spite of the difficult ask, he stays calm and cool and collected the closer he gets to this designated location. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, faith is a refusal to panic. Faith is a refusal to panic. I can't help but think that his son and these two young men that were traveling with them took their cues from him. Because let's face it, he said he was going to worship God. He takes with him the wood, 
the fire, the knife. He takes with him everything he needs for this, this sacrifice except one thing. One thing's missing. Where's the sacrificial lamb? And you know that the three traveling with him have noticed this. And yet Abraham is not stressing about this. And that helps keep everyone from letting their curiosity or their worry get them stressed out. And also, did you notice that every time someone, whether it was God or Isaac, called out for Abraham, he answered, I'm here immediately. Even the third time he responds to God, I'm here, when he knows that he's at the designated sacrificial location. And at this point, he's not seen the ram that is caught in the thorns. That is not visible to him yet. And if it were me, probably it would have taken every bit of energy I had to just whisper that I was present. He knew what was coming next. But he'd actually been signaling all along to us in this story that he trusted God. When he leaves the two young men behind, he says to them in verse five that they will return after worshiping, they, he and Isaac. This doesn't look like a deceptive statement, but it's what he believes will be true. And even when Isaac finally catches on that something is missing and he starts asking questions, Abraham doesn't flinch or hesitate to respond and answer Isaac's question. Now, he might not have disclosed everything that was going on in his mind at the time, but he did answer what he believed to be true. In fact, the most important verse in this whole story is verse eight, when he assures Isaac that the lamb for the entirely burned offering will be provided by God. God will see to it. In some ways, I wonder if this is actually becoming a testing of God. Wasn't Abraham, through his trust of God, testing to see if and how God would provide a way through this so the original blessing to Abraham would stay intact? Wasn't Abraham trusting that God still had Abraham's best interest at heart? Just like we talked about last week, God had Adam and Eve's best interest at heart. And because of this unwavering trust, Abraham follows through to the point of binding Isaac to the wood and reaching for his knife. And again, I find it curious that Isaac somehow is not showing any resistance to his father. Wouldn't any normal young boy who realized what was happening protest and beg his father not to do it? Except I believe that Isaac trusted his father so completely that he too began to believe that God was doing something bigger here. That Abraham's non-anxious presence kept Isaac calm and expectant that somehow, some way, all would be okay. And sure enough, once Abraham reached for his knife, God stops him. And it is not until after God has stopped Abraham that that ram stuck in the wood becomes available to Abraham. He demonstrated a full and complete trust in God. And God came through in the end. 
God provided one way or another, just like Abraham and Isaac believed that God would. So here's the theological dilemma the story identifies for us. At one level, when we focus on God, we see a God that provides. God provides at just the right time a substitution for the burnt offering. Isaac is not harmed and the promise to Abraham remains intact. We see through God's provision a gracious faithfulness to God. But we also see another side of God here. The God that tests Abraham. God names it in the very first verse of the story. And we see through God's testing and God's need to know Abraham's heart, we see the free sovereignty of God. God has the power and freedom to do the unexpected and to challenge us in unexpected ways. And as Walter Brueggemann put it, a single God demands complete loyalty in a world with many choices. Think about this. Abraham could have been worshiping many gods. Did God have Abraham's complete loyalty? Does God have our complete loyalty today? Because here's the deal for us. We are tested in this way every single day. God has given us free will to make our own choices. And because there are so many things in this world that demand our loyalty, that demand our attention, that vie for our heart's desire, we are constantly being tested on whether we choose God first. To be clear, it is not a manipulative test. It is not a game for God. It's a natural order of life because God has empowered us with free will. We have to make choices. Abraham exercised his free will and he chose to stay the difficult course because of his trust in God, complete trust in God. I wonder how many of us, if in that same situation would be looking somehow, some way for a less demanding alternative to God. How many of us would truly put our full trust in God? 20th century author and pastor A.W. Tozer said, we can prove our faith by our commitment to it and no other way by our commitment to it in no other way. Any belief that does not command the one who holds it is not a real belief, it's only a pseudo belief. It might shock some of us profoundly if we were suddenly brought face to face with our beliefs and forced to test them in the fires of practical living. I wonder if what I think and believe sometimes are merely pseudo belief. Have I proven my faith by demonstrating my real commitment fully? I'd like to think that I would be all in. In my heart, I say that I trust God completely. But you know what? I admit I have never been put to such a practical test with such major consequences. This past week in our Passions of Jesus Bible study, the author asked us, what are we willing to live for? 
And what are we willing to die for? I could easily answer the question, what I'm willing to live for. There are so many things. But what am I willing to die for? The question felt um, foreign to me, almost impractical. I got stuck right there in my reflection. Because I've never been pushed to that limit. I've never found myself in a situation that put my life or the life of someone I loved on the line. Would I actually give up my life for something that I could name? Or in Abraham's situation, am I prepared to sacrifice or give up something that is so truly important to me because God asked me to? Here's what I do know. I believe with all my heart that God provides. And I have to believe that if I was ever put to the test that this fundamental truth that I found to be true in my own life and that I've heard over and over and over in examples of the lives of others would kick in for me, that I would lean into that. Our God is a God of gracious faithfulness and our God provides in so many ways. And I love this particular story of provision. Reverend Jones, a retired United Methodist pastor, was sharing his particular Hurricane Katrina story with a team that was coming to help rebuild his house. So when the storm hit, um, he uh, and his wife ended up without any money. And his daughter who lived in Atlanta was begging for him, for them to come and stay with her. But they were penniless. Now they had money, but the money was in the bank and the bank was closed and they couldn't get to it. So they had absolutely no way of getting out out of town. So they went and stayed at a shelter. When time had passed and they were able to go back into their homes just to recover a few things, he decided to go back even though the water was still knee deep. When he went back into the house, there was practically nothing to save. He saw a few family photos that were floating on the water, so he grabbed those, but there was nothing else that was in shape for him to save. Went back to the shelter, began to take the pictures out so he could get them dry again. And when he took the frame apart for his father's picture, cash fell out of it. $366 fell out of the back of that frame. Now, the weird thing is his father died in 1942. Um, Reverend Jones was only 12 years old when this happened. He has no idea where the money came from, who put it in there, when it was put in there. But it was enough money for he and his wife to then be able to drive to Atlanta. I love these stories of how and when God provides. And there are so many stories of God's provision. But Abraham and Isaac's story is a dramatic one. Man, it gets our attention. But it really does make this point of provision. But I also wonder if the power in this particular story at this particular time of year is that maybe you're like me and the whole time you've been listening, in the back of your mind, you've been thinking about echoes of Jesus. 
I keep thinking about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. That last night on earth. And God is asking the ultimate sacrifice once again. But God has our best interest at heart, always. And Jesus completely trusts God the Father. While there is a wish in him that somehow there may be another way to bring salvation to humankind. But there isn't. And so Jesus is faithful to us. And Jesus is trusting in God that to die an actual human death, that the ultimate hope comes with that in the resurrection. That once again, God provides for us this promise of eternal life when Jesus rises from the dead. Because you see, God would never allow Abraham to jeopardize the promise by sacrificing his son Isaac. God would never allow sin and death to get the last word in our lives without hope being offered. God would never allow the cross alone without the resurrection. God would never allow our faith in God to be completely unanswered because through God's faithfulness, our God provides. On that, you can trust. So friends, whatever it is that you're facing today, whatever that might be, whatever struggle that is unanswered, a prayer that is unanswered, a problem that is unsolved, a financial hurdle, a a broken relationship, whatever it is, I invite you to leave it at the foot of the cross. I invite you to leave it at the foot of the cross. To put your trust in God that our God will provide. It is God's very nature. I also remind you again with just the visual on our altar, the rocks that make up the base at the wooden cross, those are all rocks that our leadership placed there um, at our leadership retreat a few weeks ago that represent their challenge for the year, um, their, their hurdle that they've realized they need to overcome and we place it at the foot of cross realizing that we don't have to carry that burden alone. It is God's very nature to provide. So like Abraham, I invite you to put your complete trust and your faith in God to believe that my son God will see to it. Because God provides, you can count on it. Go ahead. Put God to the test and see how God will come through for you. Thanks be to God for your gracious faithfulness and provision. Amen.